Between birth and death lies desire, desire for life, for love, for everything good. And this is the source of all suffering. Welcome to Drive Back the Night in Andromeda Series Podcast. I am podcast hosting unit RM-67301217131. And I am podcast hosting unit EM-6817ED98. And this is going to be a fantastic show. Well, right now that's just a consensus view, but let's play it out and see how it goes. Very well then. This is episode 16, and we are looking at the episode of Andromeda, the sum of its parts. Some of its parts? Well, it's... Oh, the. the, Yeah, the the sum sum of its parts. Uh, I think we only see some of its parts. (laughs) Yes. But it is the sum of its parts. So, and we're going to learn more about what that means, I hope. Maybe that's where you can help us out, Ethan. Is there anything you can tell us about this episode? Any uh, any trivia? Some some facts? Absolutely, yeah. I've got a couple of things here. Uh, this story, uh, the sum of its parts, was actually uh, proposed or, or come up with by Celeste Shan Wolf, and that's an interesting name because if you remember, the developer is Robert Hewitt Wolf, hmm. and so this would be Robert Hewitt Wolf's wife, actually. Oh, that came up with this story. Now, uh, it was actually a shared. Uh, load uh, Stephen Barnes actually did the writing mm-hmm. for the story, but the the idea for it did come from from Robert Hugh Wolf's uh, wife, and so she gets the uh, the credit for the story, partial credit for the story. Uh, again, that's uh, Celeste Chan Wolf. Hmm. Um, we have a couple of guest stars in this episode. One of them uh, easily recognizable. Did and, and, and do you, do you know where you came from? It's Kevin Durant. Oh. <laughs> Christopher Walken. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. No, actually, uh, Kevin Durand is, was one of the uh, the guest stars, and he played VX in this mm-hmm. episode. And he uh, plays for the Oklahoma City Thunder, right? <laughs> he could because he is six foot six inches. Oh wow! Very imposing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how I don't know how tall uh, Kevin Sorbo is, mm-hmm. but I, I think this guy's got him by a, at least an inch or so. Hmm. I mean, he he's a very uh, very large person. Very tall person. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and it definitely shows for this episode. Uh, he has some early appearances as an assassin uh, in the second Austin Powers movie, which I thought was very interesting from okay. 1999. So yeah, that was one of his uh, earliest gigs. And then he also had a recurring role in Stargate SG-1 as uh, Zapakna. I-, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Well, if you're not, I know that there's a certain Twitter follower that will correct you if you're wrong. Oh, <laughs> So yeah, as a Zipagna, he's uh, appeared in over uh, three different shows over the course of about three seasons. Uh, he also played Joshua in the Dark Angel series. He had a, that was his recurring role as Joshua there. And then most notably, I think Ryan, you will recognize him from the next show that I'm going to mention here, Lost, hmm. your favorite television show. It's my favorite show to hate. <laughs> yeah, as Martin Kimi. 
He played Martin Kimi, the one of the uh, uh, mercenaries uh, that comes onto the island oh, from, the, okay. from the ship. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he, so I, I forget how many episodes. It was eleven or twelve episodes. I think he appeared in the in that series. And then he has several other movie roles uh, to his credit. Most recently, the uh, the the Noah movie uh, that was out, I believe, last year. I think it was with uh, Russell Crowe. Uh, so yeah, definitely a familiar face, uh, in this episode and he's going to return actually in a future episode in the final season of Andromeda. So we'll see him as a, as a different character, okay. uh, later on in, uh, the episode, uh, totaled recall. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a often maligned mistake that's made, uh, in this particular episode very early on, in fact, and in all of the websites and forums and whatnot that I was in, in trying to find some trivia, uh, that it showed up in every one of them. And it's the fact that Rami, when she's talking about uh, how she came up with her avatar, her look, mm-hmm. uh, she makes mention that the mythological Andromeda was a Phoenician princess. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, is not true. Persian? No, not Persian. Okay. Andromeda in mythology was actually the daughter of Cephas, the king of Ethiopia. So she was, in fact, an Ethiopian princess. Okay. That made it somehow through the writing staff. So we're really not sure if we want to blame Stephen Barnes for that particular detail, or if this came from Celeste Chan Wolf, or we're not exactly sure how it got there, but it made it into the dialogue and it was incorrect. Mm -hmm. So setting the record straight on that, but that's all I've got for the trivia. Okay, great. All right, well, let's just get down to it then. Let's, let's talk about this episode. Uh, first, I think we need to know really what happened, though. So We need a summary of its parts? That would be... Bazinga! You were waiting for that I one, was waiting you? on that one. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right, so, Ethan, tell us about the sum of its parts. While traversing the void of space and gaining some insight into how and why Rami looks the way she does, Andromeda is approached and invaded by a swarm of moving junk machinery and parts. As the crew gathers on the hangar deck to repel this invasive force, it coalesces into a humanoid shape, complete with a face. The face immediately asks to be taken to the ship's leader and identifies itself as HG-966-HXCN5, Human-Cyborg Relations. No, just forget about that last part. HG for short. He is an emissary of the consensus of parts an empire of sentient machines living in the voids of space and rumored to prey on unsuspecting ships. Though it seems like a dangerous mission to take on, Dylan agrees to meet with the consensus. H.G., in the meantime, makes himself at home and gets familiar with the ship and the crew. Trance seems especially taken with the little mechanical rascal. H.G. wants to interface with Andromeda in order to direct her to the consensus, but no one is really sure if the Tin Man can be trusted. Rami assures Dylan that she can handle whatever Johnny Five might try and throw against her. She'll just put up a firewall to block him. And if there's anything that we have learned here in the 21st century, is that a network firewall is foolproof. I'm sure they only get better and less easy to circumvent in the future. Everything's going to be just fine. The interface goes well enough, though Rami is left a little bit disoriented. But Andromeda reaches the consensus with little incident. They are greeted by Directing Intelligence Unit VX-1583. HG seems apprehensive about meeting VX and cryptically warns Dylan to be careful. The hulking VX strides aboard and Dylan shows him around the ship, being careful to avoid sensitive and vital areas while on the tour. Meanwhile, HG is required to deconsensus. 
his mission is over, and any unit in his capacity that does not deconsensus would be a danger both to itself and to anyone harboring it. But before flying off to his death, H.G. requests a favor. He wants a wake. Everyone seems uncomfortable with what is about to come for H.G., but it seems that the walking toaster has really enjoyed his time aboard and wants to give the crew a gift, a little piece of himself for each one of them to remember him by. After some awkward exchanges, particularly with Tyr, the crew bid him farewell, and H.G. breaks apart and flies out of the ship to join the great scrap heap in the sky. VX informs Dylan that the consensus has calculated the chances of Dylan successfully restoring the Commonwealth, and the answer is failure. Therefore, the consensus graciously offers another solution. Andromeda and her crew can join the consensus. Dylan and Rami talk it over, and thanks, but no thanks. They'll have to decline. VX then informs them that this particular offer has a caveat with it. It doesn't matter if they accept it or not. Andromeda will join the consensus. Resistance is futile. Meanwhile, in the shadow of a lit lava lamp, we see that HG's left-behind parts are beginning to move around on their own and are integrating themselves into the Andromeda systems. By the time Harper and the crew detect the subterfuge, it's already too late. Rami is compromised, and the ghost of HG finds its way into Andromeda's machinery. Everyone assumes that HG's gifts are actually the electronic equivalent of a Trojan horse, and that all of this is part of VX's play to disable and take over the Andromeda and bring her into the consensus. But then VX's massive ship begins firing on Andromeda, putting an end to that idea. They can't yank HG's components out because it will hurt Andromeda. They can't release the nanobots that Harper has designed to seek out HG's parts and consume them, either, because, as Trance points out, it will kill HG. Caught between a silicone-based object and a hard place, Dylan decides that they will have to find out what HG is up to through Rami. HG takes over her body and explains that he invaded Andromeda's systems in hope of escaping the consensus, but has lost control of his components. VX detects HG's illegal joining aboard Andromeda and threatens to destroy the ship. Tyr is ready to unleash Harper's HG-killing nanobot swarm and put an end to all of this when Dylan asks him, what do you do when fighting a superior opponent in hand-to-hand -hand combat? Tyr recommends using the opponent's strength against him until they figure out how best to handle the situation. In this case, it's to allow HG to fully take over Andromeda's systems, which allows them to escape into Slipstream. And, as all of you remember, kids, computers and AIs cannot navigate Slipstream successfully. Except that VX ship can. HG confirms this and explains that several organic neural components are kept aboard in order to facilitate slipstream navigation. Brains in a bottle. Gross. VX is a little slower than Becca, but eventually he will catch them. Dylan decides to take the ship where they found HG and the massive parts lying dormant in space. HG thinks that they are simply going to dump him there, but Dylan inspires HG to mass the parts into a cohesive unit that can learn what it means to live and, conveniently, fight against the consensus that would throw them away like so much flotsam. The parts agree to join the fight and connect themselves to Andromeda, making for a pretty kick-butt Borg version of Andromeda to fight against the consensus. VX arrives out of Slipstream to discover this abomination waiting to fight them. But as the battle is joined, parts of VX's ship lower its defenses, allowing the modified Andromeda to fire on and destroy VX. 
Rami and Andromeda are then returned to normal, but HG is no more. The parts have absorbed him, and he has become essentially a new sentience, and they call themselves the Outcast Consensus One. Later, Rami remarks to Dylan that while HG nearly killed her in the name of survival, she will miss him. Trance, meanwhile, buries one of HG's remaining pieces in the soil of her garden. The end. So I think we learned, along with Trance, that if you put a former consensus part to your ear, you can hear the vast emptiness of space. <laughs> yeah. Did she put it to her ear? Yeah. Yeah, she did. She did, didn't she? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what she was trying to hear, if it was the, the ocean or... Or just the sound the of whirring of servos, consensus parts screaming. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The servo could have been. I mean, uh, there were there was plenty of servo noise to go around in this episode. Yes, there was. So yeah, actually, have... that's that's along the lines of what I noticed. Was it servo noises that was coming that were coming out of HG? Because I actually they, they sounded like mood sounds. <laughs> HG struck me as a nice combination between a. Borg C three PO, yeah, and R two D two, right? <laughs> because of the woo sounds yeah. that were coming out of him when he was sad, mm -hmm. and the excited sounds, you know, when he was, you know, worked up talking about something, you know, yeah, yeah, the mood sounds that was that was neat little touch. Yeah, well, I was I was going to say Skywalker Labs wants their sound bites back. Yeah, <laughs> it was. I I was picking up. A, well, see, I, again, I was listening to this on in headphones. Mm -hmm. And I was picking up a lot of R2-D2. Yeah. Um, HG, in his, uh, his introduction, he, he's, 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 he's wanting to be taken to the leader. Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting the way he, he presented that. He says, what is it that humans say? Oh, yes, take me to your leader. And I'm thinking, is that really what humans say? Or is it what humans say that aliens say? I think you... It was it was what humans in the 1950s said. Okay, <laughs> all right. Because that's what you that's what, when I think of "Take me to your leader." I, th I I never envision humans going up to aliens and saying "Take me to your." It's always the little green man that says to the humans, "Take me to your leader." Yeah, <laughs> you're right. But yeah, you no. Know, now that you say that, it it never is the human that says that, is it? No, I don't. It's think It's always so. the little short green alien, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I actually I had. Just an observation about HG himself again, mm -hmm. not just the sound, but I, I actually like the fact that they, when the, the, the swirling parts come into the room and then mm -hmm. they coalesce into HG, one thing I've noticed about a lot of sci-fi is they just cut to the chase right away. Whatever forms it, you know, it, it melds and becomes whatever humanoid you're going to see it for the rest of, of the show. And it does that. Mm -hmm. It forms HG. But one thing I liked about this was the added touch of uh, the formless face. Mm -hmm. You know, it had that that blank slate, mm -hmm. if you will, and and then his face just kind of morphs out of it, it almost as if it it, it waited till it saw you know the group around it and then it's like well let's let's get the least menacing face possible and put that forward you know mm -hmm. i thought that was kind of a neat touch the way they, they presented that because mm -hmm. it, it seemed like it played very well and i mean obviously tear is not going to be disarmed by anything he's always on edge but as soon as they see the face as soon as you the audience see the face and then obviously by the facial expressions of becca and and trance and harper it's just like well this is weird 
but the face is acceptable. <laughs> right. <laughs> he seems friendly enough, mm-hmm. you know. And then they, they readily just kind of, well, Trance especially, just kind of readily accepts him as he is. I thought that was an interesting little detail mm-hmm. uh, about the show itself and, and, and how they presented HG that I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, speaking of faces, there was one thing about uh, both HG and VX that, that did bother me a little bit. They're completely made up of of all uh, mechanical and electronic parts, and we're even given the impression that you know their their faces and anything that's supposed to be like skin is it's all kind of like a some Metallic. kind of a Frankenstein mesh, yeah, and it's yeah. just like kind of all bolted together right around the around the seams. Or in and, HG's case, he's got the uh, electrician's gloves on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that was an interesting touch too, but. This was one thing that did bother me a little bit, and it's probably just a budget thing or something. You're shaking your head. You know where I'm going with this? No. Okay. I just you said budget thing, and I yeah, it's definitely a budget thing. <laughs> it was, it was the eyes. I had a problem with the eyes because everything is is made to look artificial, but the eyes are so incredibly human and yeah. organic. Yeah. And I feel like they could have just covered those up, put some sort of, of optical sensor right there instead of having oh like a like a Jordy type visor well, or something. Yeah, just to block I it. mean, definitely something like a visor. Yeah, um, just just something that is able to pick up optical signals and in place of organic biological eyes. Yeah, but then you get a lot of acting right there too. Hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's yeah, I, I was gonna, I, I agree with you. I mean, even well, I referenced the Borg. Mm-hmm. Even the Borg had implants and things like that over their eyes, but you could at least see one organic component. Yeah. Of the okay. Eye. And but yeah, they were partially organic anyway. Right. Yeah. They were organic, and then they had cybernetics. The yeah. Put yeah, added to them. Yeah. So I mean, at the core, they are carbon-based biological beings yeah. with all of the organs and, and yeah. yeah and and then yeah exactly but these things are not organic at all uh, well okay let's let's look at it this way then maybe they just figured out how to do the eyes really well okay <laughs> all right yeah maybe i mean it, i guess that's kind of one of the things that makes somebody very uh personal yeah um you when you're talking to someone, you look them in the eyes. Yes. So they know that they've got a tear points it out that they've done everything they can to make this being look acceptable to them yeah. and for them to be able to feel comfortable around him. So I guess maybe knowing how humans um, and other biological beings feel about eyes. Disarm them as much as possible. Yeah, maybe. I don't think so. <laughs> No, uh-uh. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it, I, I had, I, I'm still having a hard time with that, though. Just looking at the eyes, everything is just completely robot. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, there again, I think it would have been kind of cool to have some contacts or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe give the eye some form. Yeah. But, you know, make it monochrome or something like that. Yeah. Just, just to kind of make it look not... Like you said, organic, natural, mm-hmm. right? You know, so much like a human being's actual mm-hmm. eyes. You know, yeah. No, I I agree with you. Something could have been done. 
Okay, so I mentioned it in in my summary, but I want to ask you: did you did you notice the shadow on the wall from the lamplight? I heard you say that, but I thought you were just just going to length to point out the fact that there was a lava lamp in the room. Well, yeah, but my thing with the lava lamp was it it was on, mm-hmm. it was lit. Okay, so if it's if it's issuing light, um. You're not going to have the shadow on the wall, are you? Well, you will if there's a brighter stage light shining on it. Granted, but we didn't get to see the lava in floating in shadow. It was just solid. Hmm. <laughs> I'm just pointing it out as the fact that it went, I don't know why, mm-hmm. but that particular detail just kind of went through me. <laughs> I'm just like, it's on. Mm-hmm. You know, at the, you're right. Yeah, if, if there's a brighter source behind it. Which obviously, I guess there would be. Right. Well, I'm sure there was a Fresnel or something. <laughs> but you would see liquid. You would have seen the liquid in the shadow. Okay. All right. Uh, light and dark patches, I would assume. But no, we just got solid. <laughs> like it was made, like it was all solid metal. Uh, and and I, I I thought that was, I mean, I know what they're doing. They're, they're casting the shadows so that you see the component move without them actually having to move the component because <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it's way easier to do that in CG black on whatever color that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you shouldn't have blacked out <laughs> the lava lamp. Mm-hmm. That, that I just, I just had to, had to point that out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's a valid observation. It went now, right through you. <laughs> it went right past me. Okay. And, and I grant, granted, as I say that, I mean, this is my observation. If this is the only fault that I can find and, I mean, it kind of is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was the only, you know, you your deal with the eyes, mm-hmm. it, me with the lava lamp. Okay. That's, this is my, this is my point of contention. Okay. <laughs> I guess is what I'm coming down to. So, you know that when a, a lot of times when people are in a, a situation of, of facing their mortality and they start thinking about things that are important about the people, um, I've seen this before. They start, uh, they start giving things away. Well, I guess a all HG had was just himself, so he starts giving pieces of himself away. You know, you know what I flashed to during that scene was that Pizza the Hut <laughs> taking pieces of himself off. Yeah, but he wasn't eating them. True. Yeah, and and then Tear he objects to the whole thing because um, he's not. He says that he's not going to take souvenirs of a suicide. Here's my ca- here's my deal okay, with, yeah, with tear ahead, in this. Go ahead. Uh, it's a machine. Mm-hmm. Everybody recognizes it as a machine. Well, except Trance mm-hmm. or and maybe Harper. But for tear now, now mm-hmm. you're going to pick this moment to to discuss the morality of suicide and whatnot <laughs> with a machine, right? <laughs> he he's been there for all of what a half a day, <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you're gonna now you're gonna refuse his gift to you. And it's not like we haven't in the past seen Tyr just totally look down on um, on any sort of AI as not being real life. Right. He he doesn't feel any compassion for these things at all. But I mean, it's, it's just I guess it's just Nietzschean idealism that just takes over. Yeah. You know, I don't care what you are. Suicide is just wrong, always, no matter what. Yeah. Well, I, I would say let's let's go ahead and get down into the 
the discussion, the okay. meat of what, what we've got here in this episode. Uh, what were your notes on this again? Um, I have written down all the obvious discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with that because this a lot of this is, you know, uh, what was the reference? Uh, very bonk bonk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> very, uh, you don't have to dig very hard yeah. to find the meaning of, of what it, what is being discussed here in this particular episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think, obviously, we have the nature of life mm-hmm. and this ongoing discussion within the series here now of our, our machines, our, our synthetic or artificial things. Can they be considered life? Mm-hmm. Uh, honestly, it, where we're at in the show, I'm still not willing to mm-hmm. accept it as life. Uh, I referred to it in, in my summary, and, and I will continue to refer to it and as it's sentient. Mm-hmm. You know, it has recognition of itself. Uh, it can adapt. Uh, in HG's case, he can grow, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, he can call upon whatever parts and, you know, reshape himself or whatever the case may be or, or other objects. Mm-hmm. It's, it, I don't think we're at a point yet where we're in the series where we can start calling these things life though. Um, I, I think not just in this series, but I don't, I don't think that I'm at that place in my life where I can call these things life. And maybe it's just because technologically, we're not there yet. I mean, wh- what are the most advanced artificial intelligence systems that we have right now as we record? Uh, what was the, the Watson? Yeah. Yeah. That's, from... that's, that's what comes to my mind. Yeah. And I mean, that, I mean, if, if you look into that Watson in, in any at all, I mean, it's, it's an incredible, it's a marvel of what they are able to do with that. But it's still just a really cool calculator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I no, I, I could not call something like that a living thing. I don't think they do. Yeah, you know, it's not like we've gotten to that point where. Well, trance is ready to. Trance is ready to give. No, a, I'm a, talking about the creators of Watson. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm saying in real life where we are right now in 2015, I don't think anything has been um, created by man that that anyone actually claims. Is sentient life? Yeah, and but what about for the show though? I mean, have have they presented like Rami as the AI as mm-hmm. the avatar? Yeah, uh, the ship in flesh, or yeah. or some of the other uh, what was it the uh, the Pax Magellanic? Yeah, we had the the living machine on there. Mm-hmm. Have they presented those to you as alive? Do you are you ready to accept them as being live objects? Are you talking about my personal feeling or how yeah, they I'm, are presented on the show? Yeah. Well, you know what? That's a that's a good point because those are Both. two two different things. I mean, is, is, if you're looking at it purely on how they're presented on the show, then you kind of have to accept that they are living things because, I mean, that's that's part of the discussion, um, and that's how the majority of the people on the show view these artificial intelligences as. Intelligences? <laughs> go sounds with it. sounds weird, doesn't it? It does sound weird, but it, go with it. No, that's what works. As being um, sentient living things. And, of course, there's not everyone is in complete agreement with that, as we've seen I was going to say, we've, we've got dis- disagreement between the crew. Yeah, but I would say that the <clears throat> consensus view is that they – I think for the most part they do accept AI as living. With 
the few exceptions. Tier. Yeah, tears. Yeah, definitely not in that camp. I I think definitely tier is definitely more the exception than the rule in this society. Totally off the off the mark of this episode, but is what tier holds against uh, AI and machinery life? Is that now bordering toward uh, racism? Uh, yeah, probably. Is he just being that much of a hard nose that he's not going to accept it? Would that constitute a, a racist 3,000 years from now? Yeah, probably. Hmm. I mean, it, it, anything that is not going with the social norms is considered bigotry. Yeah. So, and, and so let's go through the crew. Yeah. So does Harper? I guess he kind of does. I think Harper's but, but all over can, it. Yeah, but how can he? He created that thing. So does he view himself as a, well? I guess he does. He kind of views himself as a godlike character. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. That okay. All right. So we've got that. Uh, Becca. We had that whole conversation mm-hmm. at the start of this show, where Becca is uh, giving Rami the fifth degree on why do you look this way? Why did you take on this form? Mm-hmm. Uh, is she jealous? <laughs> they, they they don't really clarify that, but I think there's a little jealousy there. Maybe. Well, I mean, Becca can change the color of her hair. True. So, I mean, it's not like she doesn't have anything. <laughs> she can do that. Yeah. Um, you know, and as far as Becca, she's kind of one of those, it seems like she's kind of on the fence. I'm not sure at the very beginning if she was completely on board with AI being sentient life. Um, but then as we found in uh, The Mathematics of Tears... When she comes to the defense of the uh, the androids on the Pax Magellanic, because she says, you know, they're um, they're family as far as Rami's concerned, being Rami's sister. Yeah, that's it's family. Yeah, but don't you think there's a little disconnect? Uh, because you know that's kind of a re- recurring theme for her. Family is all important for her. Now it's one thing to say, yeah, this this AI has a family of other AIs, but is that in itself admitting life? I kind of have to think so. Okay. I don't. I'm not sure that she would com- make that comparison if she didn't at least at some level feel that way. If she didn't have that sort of empathy for Rami as another living thing. Okay, that's just. I don't know if that's true. That's just yeah. my guess on it. I mean, that's just kind of what I'm, yeah. what I'm reading. And, and, and well, and, you know, like I said, this this is a recurring theme that we're going to see uh, in subsequent episodes. Yeah. Uh, it, so I, I think the jury's still out on what we're seeing. Are you talking about in universe? Yes, or in us universe. as the viewers. I think well, a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, I like you said, it was a valid point. In universe, we you almost have to accept it. it you're racist if you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you don't accept the AI or machinery as, as having sentience and therefore considering it alive. Mm-hmm. Out of universe, I'm not convinced yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's nothing, like you said earlier, there's nothing current in, in our world around us, you know, that, that we have here in the 21st century that's anywhere close right, to, to being artificial intelligence sentient life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and so far, I'm not seeing anything in in the show 
that is is convincing me otherwise either. Mm-hmm. Um, to steal a line from another podcast that I like to listen to, um, I, I would have to consider myself a carbon chauvinist. In, in not all, there it is. yeah, not all carbon life is uh, sentient. Yeah, um, and I, I, I really have a hard time with this whole idea. And, and again, maybe it's just because we haven't seen it. Um, just the whole idea that you could make something artificial, it be intelligent and sentient. Yeah. Um, honestly, the sentience is the thing that I have the hardest time with because you can write an incredible program. Watson is already an incredible program that's been written by people, and it's able to do amazing things. It, it, it can it can it has so much computing power, and it is so fast. <clears throat> well, what's it doing right now? It's in. Uh, it's plugged into medical databases right now, and a doctor anywhere can query it and get. Every available bit of data for a, a condition, a disease, a treatment, and, and it, it compiles all that information, filters through it, and gives them uh, specific, specific information for the parameters that they're looking for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's way beyond the capacity of, of a single human brain. Right. We do those things very well, but not in the same method and not with the same results that we get from a computer like Watson. Right. But there's no sentience to that. There, it, it, it's not. It's not intelligent. No, it's a very intelligently written program. Yeah, written by intelligent people. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's not alive. It can win at Jeopardy. It can. I mean, and, it can, and it can tell you exactly what's wrong with your pancreas mm-hmm. and how to treat it without messing you up. But yeah, you, you know. Well, there's there's computers that can and have totally kicked my butt at chess <laughs> yeah i mean in like three moves yeah that doesn't make it intelligent or sentient or definitely not living yeah so okay so we're agreed we have nothing that that can can convince us at this point in the year 2015 that there is some sort of sentient living artificial intelligence somewhere Right. Right now. Okay. So now let's just assume that in universe this is the case. These things are I still I still have trouble with the whole sentience thing though. Yeah. How do we know that they're actually sentient or if they're just a computer program reacting well, I mean the this, way they're they're written. Yeah, this be? was the whole thing with HG. This was HG coming to coming to life. Mm-hmm. But he only comes together because of the directing intelligence. Right. Uh, the directing intelligence gives this group of components a job and programming, and it shows up, and it does it to the best of its ability. Now, it starts to learn other things, and then now we get down to that idea of willpower, uh, desire, Mm-hmm. Which I think it, I know we're getting close yeah. to our, our, yeah. our saying for the show, but I mean this is this is part of the conversation. Now you have desire. HG wants to continue to to exist, mm-hmm. and it does not want to deconsensus, and it actually goes around its programming in order to remain a cohesive entity, mm-hmm. a sentient entity of of even though it not, may not be in body, it you know spreads itself out throughout. Andromeda and it integrates it with the systems. There's desire, there's purpose, self-purpose mm-hmm. basically in that. And so now you come down to, well, that's, 
that's something that's alive. Something that's alive wants to continue to exist. But how does HG develop this? Um, VX does not have this. True. I mean, and VX is a much more powerful consensus. Yeah. I mean, the the authority and the power that VX has, you would think if anyone is going to develop some kind of ambition, some kind of desire or a will to keep living, it's going to be someone who has I, – I I'm, I'm not sure why it is, and this happens over and over again. Um, have you seen Wally? Oh yeah. Okay, Wally and Eva. Out of all of these hundreds of thousands, who knows how many um, robots and AIs there are, for some reason these two come together and and form a relationship. That's not in their programming. Right. It's it's not in HG's. Can we call it programming? I mean, I guess that's essentially what he is, right? He's just, yeah. He's a He's programmed. And essentially what we come down to is the variable in this story. And the variable is the crew of Andromeda. HG is programmed to interface. Mm -hmm. How often has that happened before? Judging by the lack of information about the consensus, they've pretty much kept to themselves, it seems like, Mm -hmm. for the most part. Yeah. Other than attacking rogue ships, perhaps. We don't even know if that's actually happening or not. Right. By VX's response, maybe so. But, uh, you know, so HG is given this this imperative to, to go out and interact with human beings. That's the variable. And so HG's desire and his, his learning to come to life or sentience comes from his interaction with the crew of Andromeda. But why does he have the desire? It, that's, the, that's the question we can't answer. It just, it, all of a sudden it's there. And that's what always happens. Yes, it, I know. know. I mean, I, otherwise we don't have a story. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it it, it it just seems like it happens too often, though. It's yeah. W- whatever the story is, you have all of these androids and robots and AIs all over the universe. None of them develop sentience. Or no, 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 no. <laughs> I was gonna say yeah. none of them. <laughs> none of them are able to develop. Anything outside of their programming. Yeah. Supposedly. Unless they're programmed to. Someone like uh, like Rami, the Andromeda, um, she's able to grow within herself. and Yeah, but – and I guess that's the thing is that so far she hasn't really done anything outside of her programming, has she? Well, I don't know. I mean is having the hots for her captain outside of her programming? Ooh. Yeah, point. Good point. Yeah, maybe so. There's 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 desire there. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But that's but that's almost acceptable. Uh, what happens when you become familiar with a person over time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you develop that attachment. Yeah, maybe that's all that is. Maybe that's that's part of the programming is the attachment to the captain, and and everyone perceives it as a, a desire for something more. But has anybody asked Rami if she's in, if she's got the hots for Dylan? I don't think anybody has yet. No, Tyr and Becca started to gossip about it a little bit. Right. Um, of course, Tyr didn't want to gossip. But as far as confronting them, and they themselves have not confronted right. that situation. Right. So I guess I guess we can't really know for sure. 
Okay. Well, it, I, even I, so, it, it, okay, but but what you're saying though, still, it, it seems like it's something that would have to develop over time. Yeah. You have to, as a as a living sentient artificial intelligence, you would have to go through experiences and and grow and learn new things and then and reach out and try new things and then as that happens you start to develop your own personality here hg develops this within the first day of his existence yeah you know it's just like i'm here i have a program i want to live i want to be free <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah no yeah it, and it just that's the thing it, for this story to to exist within the 45 minutes that it's on, they have to move it along. The problem is I think that the story suffers because of, it has to be moved along so quickly. So then could there have been some sort of time lapse? Uh, yeah, you could have written something in there. Maybe maybe it was a longer journey. Yeah. Um, you know what? That's another point I want to bring up. Okay. Yeah, this... I, don't, okay. I think we're spinning our wheels on the other one. So, like, yeah, let's move on. <laughs> and they're the same wheels we've been spinning for the last 15 episodes. Oh, yeah. So they're, they get directions, basically, to the, to the consensus of parts. Yeah. How is it that you can map out a route through the slipstream? If the slipstream is supposed to be based on intuition, then how can you draw a map? For it, I mean, Becca knows she's like, yeah, it's going to take us a couple of hours. We've got so many uh, different different stops. And- well, well, hold on. All all that uh, HG has to do is give them the information as to as to where they're located, right? And then it's up to the pilot to navigate the slipstream to get them to that point. Correct. Okay, okay maybe that's the case, but I'm still not understanding how because she says, you know, we have what is it, two or three more slip points. Yeah. If it's all based on intuition and it's just like, okay, if you say that the consensus of parts is going to be on the first right, <laughs> that's what I've decided. That's my intuition. Yeah. Well, there it is. First right. Yeah. I mean, why is it that she says it's going to take several hours and it's going to be two or three slip points? Yeah. You know, I mean. Well, that's a good point. How do you – There, there's got to be some sort of um, navigation, some sort of – map <laughs> yeah and, and and i don't know if you quite said it or not but how how is hg as a machine that cannot intuit uh navigating the slipstream how is he able to to, to give those instructions mm-hmm. yeah no that's a that's a yeah, that's a tough one right there i mean hg doesn't seem to know where it is doesn't seem to know how to get there because i mean he has to ask hey so how long is it going to be yeah I and, and, and I love that that Becca gives him that vague answer, mm-hmm. and he's just like, "Well, you're so imprecise, you know. <laughs> you know, I've got an internal chronometer that's going, <laughs> yeah, you know, with 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 universal time constantly. Yeah. Well, he's uh, he probably knows that he's on borrowed time already. True. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, he should have deconsensed already. So, uh, character stuff. What what do you got? Well, I. Actually, this was an episode where it was nice because I didn't feel like we were tied to our main characters. Mm-hmm. This did really feel like we were just kind of going along on an adventure with them. And we got to see them in different roles and whatnot. But this this seemed to be more centered on the story itself rather than mm-hmm. character development. And uh, I think this is probably one of the first episodes where we've gotten that. Where we weren't tied to one particular 
character specifically. Yeah. And advancing their story. Right. Much more ensemble. And even one of our main characters doesn't even turn out to be the hero. Yeah. Yeah. Wait a second. Was Rev Bim even in this episode? No. He, he was wasn't. Absent. He was absent. Mm-hmm. Exposition as to why? No. None. Okay. All right. So we're starting to see that pattern. Okay. In any case, I did like what we got to see out of Trance. Trance is a very compassionate individual. She obviously, when no one else is ready to speak up for HG, she's obviously willing to put herself on the line for HG's life. I mm-hmm. thought that was very telling. Uh, it's not really something new that we've learned about her. It's just, at least she's keeping with the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, too, I thought it was interesting, the little bit of, of information we got about Rami and how she got her look. I thought that was kind of interesting how that came about. And we talked a little bit about that earlier, about Becca's reaction to it. <laughs> Obviously, there's, there's something going on there. We're not quite sure what. But uh, I, I thought it was kind of cool that that Rami paid that level of attention to, to detail mm-hmm. to, to get the look that, that she finally settled on. So, yeah, there was a couple of points about the characters yep. I think we, we pick up from here. But but like I said, it, it's uh, it, you're right. It, it's more ensemble. It's mm-hmm. It's not tied to a specific cast member, it seems like. All right, Ethan, so this is interesting. Between birth and death lies desire, desire for life, for love, for everything good, and this is the source of all suffering. That's our quote for this episode. Well, I think if you're a living, breathing human being, mm-hmm. yeah, you know the, that carries a lot of weight with it. If you just came into existence and fell off the uh, scrap heap turnip wagon mm-hmm. and, you know... 12 hours later, you're wanting to not de-consensus and mm-hmm. continue living. I think it's kind of forcing it a little bit. <laughs> That's just my personal opinion. Right. <laughs> um, it was interesting. Did you happen to notice where that quote came from? I did not pay attention to that. This is Commonwealth year 10942. So we're a couple more thousand years into the future now. Yeah. This is from the Outcast Consensus 17. Okay. So there's a little bit of a... So we know that this is going to continue on. We're, we're given something here to see that this, uh, this uprising against the... The consensus. Yeah, the consensus of parts. Now you have this, this rival consensus. Yeah, this is something that's going to continue on, evidently for at least another couple thousand years. Well, it's almost into the... It's almost into the eleven thousands. Yeah. So, yeah, we're that's curious because I missed that. I missed that little detail. No, I I, I believe you. You don't have to show it to me. <laughs> yeah. I I missed that little detail, and I, th- I that's that's very telling. Yeah. Because apparently, what seventeen? So you got seventeen generations. Is, is I I don't know. Or maybe they're just you know the seventeenth one to come along. Yeah. Maybe it's propagating now. Mm-hmm. That would be that would be an indication of life if it's propagating itself. Hmm. Yeah. There you go. Well, something I mean, to think about. But just propagating with leftover parts that are in these big yeah, scrapyards. You, you spin off an element of your personality and it takes over, you know, another group, another scrap heap. Well, I mean, really isn't that all we are? <laughs> <laughs> we're just we're made up of of molecules and elements. True. And Star we're all stuff. we've taken taken a piece of of whoever we came from true and then grew from that there you go so you know what i'm convinced now I, you know what we have we have arrived at consensus <laughs> maybe. on this argument maybe <laughs> oh that's interesting so yeah I, I think it's pretty cool because this apparently the 17th iteration whatever it is whatever mm-hmm. it may be um that it, it has gotten a, 
it sounds like it's gotten a grasp on what life is. Mm-hmm. And a lot, large part of it comes down to what you desire, what you desire right. to do with your life. You know? I wonder if this uh, Consensus 17 is, is part of HG, if it is a direct descendant, because evidently it's learned this, the same thing that HG learns in this episode. Yeah. I mean, very quickly he learns this. Well, you'd have to say that this would be the spark. Mm-hmm. That, that gets this whole process started. Right. So we saw a birth, essentially. Consensus yeah. one or, or, or outcast consensus one. Yeah. Almost almost a new species. Yeah. Well, this just turned into a whole V'ger episode from Star Trek, didn't it? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, except without the, the biological components. Right. Well, I don't yeah. know. I mean, you know what? That's yeah, sad. That's... What happened to those uh, brains in a bottle when the ship blew up? Uh, I guess they're I done, aren't they? Yeah, well, you know, they probably weren't sentient, so it, it doesn't really matter. They're not really alive. True. It's just, it's just, it's just living parts is all it is. Yeah. So I think, I think, um, a lot of times Harper <laughs> says things. It's just like, man, I think he had it right this time. Ew. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe that's where Jimmy Fallon got it. Maybe so. <laughs> all right. So, um, all right. The episode. What are what are your overall thoughts on it? How do you feel about it? You know what? When, when we first started talking about doing the show and I saw this episode, my initial thought on this was, oh my gosh, this was a total Borg ripoff. That was my- but getting into the episode itself and the message and talking about it with you and, and, and having watched it a couple of times, it really isn't a, a knockoff of the Borg. Yes, I mean, the humanoid form, you can look at it and you can say, all right, they definitely had the template for it, mm-hmm. for Borg. But there's not a whole lot of ways you can present a humanoid machine form differently, mm-hmm. you know, unless you make it completely asymmetrical and, and you know, animatronics. And then you're talking about cost and things and like that. you got Transformers. Yeah. <laughs> they totally go. ripped off Transformers. They totally ripped off Transformers. Yeah. yeah. There you go. You're so, ripping off somebody, always. But so. ultimately what it comes down to is this is not a Borg ripoff episode. And, and, and that shame on me for thinking that initially. Looking at it a little bit deeper, there's a, a broader message, there's a broader meaning, and it is in keeping with what the show has already kind of broached with the whole AI thing, and is AI living or not? So yeah, I think that this really is in keeping with the uh, the spirit or the message of the show, and uh, you know what? I, I, I have enjoyed this episode. I have enjoyed watching it, and I, I'm just going to leave it at that. Okay. You know, I, you said shame on me about yourself for for making that comparison to the board. Yeah, shame on me, not you. Right, shame on. Okay. But but I mean, you, I, you can't blame yourself for that because I mean I think that's what anybody's going to do. That you see that you instantly you've got to think Borg. Um, but you're right. Once you get past that, there is a lot more to it. Uh, I shouldn't say a lot more. Than like more than Borg, but I mean, there's there's definitely a lot more that makes them different than Borg. Yeah, yeah, it um, differentiates yeah. itself if you give it a chance. Mm-hmm. And and you know that's something that I, even watching it all the way through the first time I watched it, uh, I had a hard time getting away from that. And when we were talking about doing this episode, um, before I had watched it again, I was like, oh yeah, that was the Borg episode. Uh, but it seems like any time we, we really watch these and then we get into the discussions about them, you always start to look at them a different way. 
a lot of these episodes that I've seen, and I've, I've thought I've thought that was a really bad episode. And then when it comes down to it, when you you take away all the things that you can pull out of it, it, none of them are really as bad as maybe you first had thought the first time you saw it. Uh, all of a sudden, you start to realize all the different things that are in them uh, about learning about the characters, about the story arc overall. So, you know, like even some of these episodes that I have at the bottom of my list, I really don't have any that I think were bad. I've got some that I joke about as being the worst, but even the worst so far have not been bad. Yeah. Now, but the thing about this episode that I have a hard time with is knowing what I know. Um, and I, I don't like to get out of timeline too often and jump ahead and say things that you haven't found out yet. But you have read the coda, right? Okay, so we what what we, you and I both know is that this episode was kind of a jumping off point for something that was supposed to have been much bigger, and so I'm very disappointed about this fact that this is an episode that was supposed to have been something and turned out to not. We were supposed to see. Something happened further down the line. Where yes, we, yeah. this this was our introduction to what was supposed to have been a major plot point in the overall story. Well, arc. yeah, this would have been a, a component to that universe. Exactly. That's yeah. But we're not going to see it again, are we? No. This is sadly it. enough. So you know, I mean, heads rolled, writers got bumped out, and and stuff changed. Yep. And we end up not not seeing the consensus of parts anymore. Right. So, which is a shame because poke fun of it, like you said about Borg and you know consensus collective, you know all of those component those those lines that you can draw as parallels. Uh, it it would have been a very good element to have later on in the mm-hmm. series and, and revisit. Unfortunately, I think that this episode kind of suffers because of that. If we continue to see more of this in the future, and this ends up becoming what Robert Hewitt Wolf had originally intended for the consensus of parts to be, then this becomes an incredible episode because this is when we meet them for the first time. Right. But since we never, ever see them again, now this is a throwaway episode. Yes. Nothing happened in this episode and, and it, that, that, that really impacts anything that happens further down the line. I forget the name of the, the Next Generation episode, but it comes in season two where you get that introduction to the Borg. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Q introduces them to the Borg. You have that whole epic interaction, and then they're thrown back to their part of the galaxy, the Enterprise I'm talking about here, mm-hmm. uh, thrown back. And and, and it's like, whoa, what? What? What's going to happen? Well, in that universe, we get to see all of the interaction that comes from that initial introduction. Right, and they become one of the, the greatest villain ever yeah, in all yeah, of sci-fi yeah exactly and, and you're and so yeah i totally understand what you're saying here we just got that in yeah, andromeda right unfortunately we're going to see the results of the writers not doing with it anything with it from this point henceforth <laughs> yeah it, it kind of i'm thinking it would have been nice if they had at least even if they didn't do uh what was originally intended for them just bring them back 
sometimes. Yeah. You know, just, just, you've got them around. Yeah, you've got yeah. this incredible force. There's obviously going to be some sort of element of combat going forward mm-hmm. in this series, you know, in the, in the overarching story. Make him an element of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, have him side against Andromeda or, mm-hmm. or whatever the group, the Commonwealth, whatever it is yeah. in the future. Just make him a foil a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah. That, that'd have been nice. Um, so, yeah, I think that it suffers because of that. And so that makes it not as good as it could have been. Yeah. Even still, it was interesting. It was entertaining. It brings up lots of points of discussion. I mean, I did enjoy it. Yeah. I liked it. I liked it better this time around than I did the first time I watched it. Yeah. No, and, and, and for me, there was really not anything easy to pick out to dislike about it. Something that distracted or took away. Mm-hmm. And so, for that reason, I, I think it's it, all, all in all. I think by itself, it's it's a very strong, a very enjoyable episode to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have completed. I think it might be time for us to deconsensus. Is it time to shut down? I think so. Yeah, deconsensus. That's too bad. <laughs> I was really starting to enjoy this whole living thing. I'm going to figure out some way to keep living. I guess just uh, throw some speaker wire around, attach it to the walls. <laughs> yeah, like ivy. Yeah, there you go. If somebody wants to get a hold of us, Ethan, how could they uh, get a hold of us? They can do so by sending us an email, drivebackthenightpodcast at gmail.com. We're on social media, Facebook and Twitter, using the Andromeda Pod handle on both of those places. We're on Podbean, www.andromedaseries.podbean.com. We are also on iTunes. And if you subscribe to us there, we'd certainly appreciate it. Give us a review or some stars. Uh, that would be great. Thanks. Thanks again to our friend Tim Kimmerly for giving us his voice at the beginning of this episode for our opening quote. We are an Age of Geek production, and we hope that you will join us again next week as we discuss fear and loathing in Las Ve- No, that's not right. No, no, not the, not the movie. I mean, it, La- Las Vegas is included in there, I guess, right? <laughs> it's in there somewhere. Yeah. You gotta look hard. Fear and loathing in the Milky Way. Yeah.